It was a March morning, weeks before the war's end, when the big rocket hit. Finchley Road was not the target. Missiles were blind, but they made a mess. First the flash and bang of a one-ton warhead. Then, after a second of silence, the delayed swish of the incoming missile travelling many times faster than the speed of sound. After that, the sound of screaming as the missile's massive shockwave ricocheted like steel thunder through the narrow North London streets. It flattened whole blocks, blowing out glass in 10,000 windows, reduced the Hampstead Telephone Exchange to rubble, tossed the books about in the Central Lending Library on Arkwright Road like so much waste paper, and cut an ugly gash 200 yards away in the wall of my childhood home. It was later covered over in a zigzag of shabby concrete. In the six months before the armistice, when it was obvious Germany had lost the war, many hundreds of Londoners were blown to bits by ballistic V2s. The V in V2 stood for Verwaltung, the German word for retribution and revenge. It was Hitler's revenge for a war he knew he had lost. The V2 may have been the only weapon in history that killed more of those that manufactured it in many accidental explosions than the 5,000 civilians in London and Antwerp it murdered. Slaves assembled it, drawn from a special concentration camp, French and Russian prisoners of war, presided over by a Prussian scientist, Werner von Braun, and a corps of Nazi engineers. Later, the Allies cooked up the story that von Braun had merely been a star-struck engineer of genius given his dream project by Hitler. That is far from the truth. At Himmler's invitation, he and his weapons program had been fully integrated into the SS empire, though he lied about it to his American interrogators after the war as they whisked him away to work for them on nuclear weapons and moon travel. They were in effect willing to turn a blind eye to his war crimes. So was Wolf, my father. Von Braun had after all been his good friend at prep school. Ten years on, this tall blonde missile meister, the man who managed to crack the bricks of our Victorian villa like so much eggshell, came to tea. Accompanied by a posse of secret service who sat in a row in our kitchen, my Jewish father Wolf, his utterly improbable teenage boarding school roommate, the Faust of missile warfare and the Columbus of space travel, had dropped by to relive his teenage years and examine the damage one of his unguided V2s had done. There was laughter and linzer torte and much backslapping. In my imagination, I can hear von Braun, saved for reasons of state from the hangman's noose, merrily misquoting Tom Lehrer at the top of his lungs as Wolf took him into our back garden to show him the sad, jagged scar that ran four stories from the roof to the ground. Nazi schmazi, who cares where they came down, Wolfie? I didn't care, not my department. Peter, that's a wonderful reading. Von Braun came to tea and Linzer Tort at yeah. your house. Yes, he did. And how old were you? About 12. And how was he explained to you before he entered the house? Well, I heard the story of how my father was at school with him all my life. So before. This was, it was dad's old roommates coming. Dad's old roommate is coming for tea. Dad's old roommate was by then very famous because the American rocket program was known all over the world and Americans actually took to Von Braun, they liked him. So there was no immediate need for your parents to even deal with this man's 
record of atrocity because the world had rehabilitated him and stamped him as a viable person for the post-war. That is correct. I mean, he wasn't, he was already, I mean, he came possibly around the time that Kennedy was first elected, I don't know, but he became a great friend of John F. Kennedy. Kennedy, Kennedy used to go to the Space Center in Huntsville, Alabama, and was escorted around by von Braun, and von Braun became a national hero. And it's said, but it's also said that at, at Huntsville, von Braun forbade the speaking of German in his household. He knew that he had a past that he'd skated. Well, he rehabilitated himself. Yes, he did. He spoke he spoke English with a German accent, but it was a very Americanized German accent. But even today, smart people when they talk about Werner von Braun, it's it's comic how he skated. There's a there's a sort of winking. Yeah. Got he got away with it kind of joke in in intellectual circles where like even today like which is actually a tribute to him still getting away with it like if we talk about him as a curiosity or an oddity or or a person of dark comedy rather than as you said a meister of slave labor and terror then like in some sense von braun got away with it he did but he wasn't the only one he was the most famous well, we're going to get to another one next week but let's stick with von braun this is just Uncle Werner for, for a visit, or not even Uncle Werner, just a daddy's old roommate. My father was, after all, Jewish and came from Vienna. His father was a Jewish doctor. My grandmother was widowed when my father was 10. They were Jews. And my father left Austria to save his life because had he stayed, who knows? You know, the Germans would have arrested him, obviously, and he might have been carted off to a camp. But he had a very odd attitude towards the Nazis. He was after all at school in Germany for five long years when he was a teenager. And he was the only Austrian in his school and the only Jew. And so his attitude towards the Nazis was not as predictable as your average Jew. Your average Jew in London or New York wouldn't buy a Mercedes-Benz, wouldn't go to Germany, wouldn't, to this day. wouldn't buy a German sausage. Anything German was, was taboo. My father did not share that view. And he found some of the people he had known in Germany before the war who were still alive. And some, many of the people he met after the war as a publisher, he would go every year to the Frankfurt Book Fair yeah. and things like that. He liked them. He found them interesting. He found them intelligent. He found them creditable. <clears throat> and even if some of them had dark pasts, he was willing to forgive. I mean, you could say, how could he? How could he possibly? But he did. So I did not grow up thinking that a man like von Braun was a, automatically a monster. Well, neither did JFK, so you weren't, you weren't alone in that. Exactly. Right. Exactly. And in fact, you know, it was the CIA that brought him over. Operation Paperclip, it was called. Which, and I think Henry Kissinger, that was one of his first real jobs. I think he was involved in, in, in as a young um, uh, German refugee, he was involved in Paperclip. Paperclip interrogated hundreds of people. Well, and in our own lifetimes, we've seen what happens when the other attitude is taken, which was debathification in Iraq. And the truth is, you can't damn the managerial class of an entire society. No, you can't. You actually might create greater harm. Exactly. And greater and the, radicalization. And the, German, and the German managerial class and the engineers and so on were very talented, many of them. So why would you do without them if you could have them? Well, in some perfect moral plane you could, but that's not the planet that we live on. It's well, this Cold War had begun. I mean, there were some who were brought to Russia and some were brought to America. We got the better half of that deal. But the truth of the matter is that uh, the Cold War had begun. America was already planning to, as it were, fight the Cold War uh, before the war ended, right. actually. And so getting von Braun was a smart move. 
Now, as much as you are not interested in Diana, you have wonderful thoughts on the continued relevance of Von Braun in an age of billionaire space travel. He interests me, and Speer interests me, as you know, we, we think about, you go to the Avenue of the Americas and you can see that we took German modernist architecture. Yeah. You look at space travel, yeah. you see we took the German rockets. But also this idea of specialization as in some way containing moral absolution, that you talk to somebody who was involved yeah. at Purdue Pharma and they say, I was just in the lab. Yes. Don't, like, don't look at me for the fentanyl um, epidemic. This had its roots in these very specialized people from the Third Reich who argued successfully for their own rehabilitation. And they also argued for their dreams. I think that, uh, you know, von Braun as a boy was a brilliant dreamer and a bedwetter, which is why he was in a room with my father, because they were both thought to be outsiders. Uh, but he was a dreamer. So he obviously read Jules Verne, mm -hmm. right? And there were other science fiction books, you know, H.G. Wells, who knows what. And he dreamed of space when he was 12. And it was his, his lifelong ambition to get to space. He never got there himself, but he got the machinery there and he got men there. And that was, a, that was his life's work. And that's what he wanted. And Hitler gave it to him. Must have been very heady. He was only in his 30s when he was building the V2. I mean, the V2 was a vicious uh, uh, weapon. And a clumsy program. You said more Germans were killed by the V2 than That's right. I mean, allies. In, in building the V2, which they had to do quickly because they knew the war was lost, they took, they cut corners and they took risks and they and they blew people up on and the where, ground. On the ground. On the ground. And where did the slave labor come from? Well, the slave labor was mainly Russian and uh, French prisoners of war. It wasn't Jews, I don't think. I mean, there might have been a handful, but basically it was it was French POWs. French POWs, yes, and Russian. And they had a special uh, labor camp near to Penamunda, which is where the rocket testing ground was. And from where, it was on the Baltic coast, from where they launched uh, the V-2. Later, they, they burrowed into a mountain because the Allies discovered Penamunda and they started bombing it. And so they couldn't do it from Penamunda anymore. So they stored the rockets in a mountain cave and just wheeled them out just shortly before they launched them. They had no guidance system. They didn't no. have what eventually became crucial to nuclear warfare. They didn't have a guidance system. So they landed somewhere. To go back to the question I asked, you didn't know who he was when he came, but at w do you remember the moment when you said, holy shit, that's the guy who was over for tea? Yes, I do. I mean, I actually stared at him, you know, probably rudely, um, in the house. I mean, I thought, my God, this is the real man. This is Werner von Braun. He was very good looking. He was tall and blonde and good-looking. No, but the, but when he came over for tea, you didn't know who he was. No, I didn't know who he was because my know. father announced it. He said, tomorrow afternoon, we've got a special guest. Okay, so so how was, I guess what I'm saying is this. How was he intro to you versus, and then what was the moment when you go, oh, but he did it all for frickin' Hitler? Like there's a there was information that wasn't given to you before the visit. Well, my You only got the positives before the visit. Yeah. Right. My moral sense at that age and even now, may be defective, because I find it more interesting to be interested than to be outraged. Continue. Give I mean, me more on it's, that. it's easy to be the grandson of a Jew who was persecuted by the Nazis and or possibly murdered, and say, I won't talk to any Germans, I won't use the German language, I won't do this, I won't do that. That's easy. I mean, I don't have that sense of moral outrage, actually. Of course the Nazis were evil. I watched a movie the other night about the Wannsee Conference, where it was decided yeah. to basically get rid of the Jews. And it was horrifying. Yeah. 
So yes, I mean, I can, in extremis, I can uh, feel moral outrage at um, Reinhard Heydrich and all those terrible people. But that's at, at the age, you know, at the age of 76 you are now, right? 77. 70, yeah, you just had a birthday. <laughs> I just had a birthday. Um, tell me about the moment where you said, oh my God, that's the guy, and, and, and I didn't know half of his story. Well, was I, there ever I, that moment? There was that moment with him and with others. I mean, I met several high Nazis. We're going to get to them later in my in the television pod. career, you know. Yeah. And I had that sort of epiphany. Yeah, I'm sitting next to the guy who did this or who did that. Yeah, I did have that. But was I repelled enough to sort of leave the room and no. go and cry in my room? No, it wasn't. I'm not getting the answer to the question that I'm asking, which is, you don't. I think you probably just don't remember the moment when you were reading a book and you said, holy shit, this guy came to my house when I was a kid. And all I knew was that my dad said he was brilliant, but my dad didn't tell me the other shit he did. Well, no, he did because he told me about the crack in our he house. He said, this guy he, fucked up our house and yeah. he's coming over and he's awesome. Yes. What a bizarre world well, we he, live in. He didn't necessarily say he's awesome, but he said he did it. Okay, and and he, actually, I thought of Von Braun like you think of a German pilot. In other words... You, spaceman you, spiff. You, you make a distinction, if you know anything about war, between armed forces and something else like the SS. Yeah. The armed forces are drafted. My uncle, one of my mother's brothers was in the German Air Force. I mean, you don't blame them for bombing London. That was their order. They were ordered to do that, and they did it in the name of war. War is horrible, but once war is declared, what are you going to do? You aren't a monster because you dropped a bomb on London. And most people don't act in those moments in any kind of a heroic way, right? No, they don't. They Most obey orders. They obey, they obey orders. So you could argue that my attitude to von Braun was similar. Yeah. I mean, I always we, we've said this before, but I always think if you want a measure of how timid most people are, we don't delete our Instagram accounts in 2021 and we know what Facebook has done. We continue to buy iPhones and we know where the things are sourced from. So we're in pretty balsa wood scaffolding in terms of having a podium or a platform from which to criti to make these big criticisms. Yeah. Because it would take really very little to make those moral actions. It's interesting. I can't defend eating meat, and yet I eat no, meat. No, I can't do that. I can't defend having leather shoes. I mean, no, I, I can't. I can't. But, you know, it's very interesting. I was just thinking, um, of all the people I've met in a very varied uh, journalistic career, Yeah. and I sometimes sought them out because I wanted to I think to you did seek them out. I did in some cases. Um, the fact is, when I tell people that my father was at school with Werner von Braun, they are more excited to hear more and more sort of gobsmacked by it than almost anything I have to say. They're fascinated by it. He's a world-famous figure. Yeah. You know, they think of him in terms of Neil Armstrong. Yeah, you know, Patricia Lockwood, who got shortlisted for the Booker Prize in, in that book, No One's Talking About This, which is so well-written, beautiful. And, but it's many observations. She talks about how prior to Trump... Tight barbering, like you saw in the Wehrmacht, was making an aesthetic return. Yep. And it had an undeniable allure that was somehow being discovered by a generation of millennials, maybe totally divorced from historical context. Right. right. But there is the chicness of the monster. Oh, yes. It's the Byronic devil. I mean, why is it that apart from Princess Diana, the subject that is most popular in terms of I'm not talking about Diane anymore. No, I, no, no, but I'm I just saying this podcast. There are very few there are very few subjects that hold people's attention more than Hitler. In your memoir you mentioned that you've met six or seven six or seven people who who who, who had personally, contact with personally Hitler. Personally knew Hitler. And I think it's one of the most fascinating threads of the memoir because the book is about the destruction of Atlantis which complicated your life as a human because of identity. And in a sense you wanted to know about the people who had done demolition 
to the world in which you might have had a more easy time of being. Yes, that's exactly right. Right? That is precisely right. They destroyed, well, they and their forebears. I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't only the Nazis because the Germans in 1914 contributed mightily to that. But the fact is it was Hitler mainly who destroyed the world that I could have grown up in and it might have been an easier world to grow up in than the one I did grow up in. Is Freud the one who observed first the identification with the aggressor? Yes. Right, that children dress up like monsters because those are the things that haunt them in their dreams. So you gain some mastery yes. over the boogeyman. Yeah. Um, James Austin Johnson does an amazing Trump impression wherein Trump just has the most, the most Twitter-friendly views, meandering views on pop culture. And someone in the Atlantic tisked him for bringing Trump back and giving him a platform. But yep. I thought this was art at its best because he's taking Trump with, with it's an impression that has incredible verisimilitude and realism, but he's making him just another harmless schmuck who's seen some movies. This is the beginning of processing the trauma and moving past the trauma. And this is art beginning to show ideology why it is essential and what it, what it and only it can do. Yeah, I think that's right. No Atlantic essay is going to achieve that. It's no. only the power of laughter. Yeah. Well, I didn't see the first. But Trump your memoir is, in a sense, this life's project that you had of meeting the people who knew the devil. That's right. Was was part of working through the trauma. That was very important to me at some point in my life. I mean, not, not no longer, but at one point in my life, it was very important to meet these people, and to ask them every question I could think of, and also to own the full spectrum of emotions that you felt on meeting them, because there was a thrill. Yes, there was a thrill. There's a cheap thrill. I mean, maybe it's not so cheap, but there's a thrill. It's an expensive thrill. Maybe it's expensive. <laughs> Far from cheap. <laughs> but but even that was something that you didn't choose. I mean, this man was invited over for tea. So yes, I couldn't stop it. And you it couldn't stop it. It wasn't my initiative. I mean, he must have contacted my father. He knew he was in London and said, I'm coming to England for whatever reason. Um, are you around and can I come over? Now, what do you think was in it for Von Braun? He's a busy guy. Well, old friendship. I mean, you old know, they were, they were close friends. I mean, they, you know, it's rather nice. It's like going to a class reunion. Yeah. Why not? You know, there's a story of Napoleon when he's from Corsica, right? Yeah. And he gets his spot post-French Revolution, which he would never have had without the revolution at the French Military Academy. Mm -hmm. And we all look back and we see Napoleon as the apogee of Frenchness, but he didn't see himself that way. And Napoleon says, I intend to cause these French as much mischief as possible. Yeah. <laughs> that was Napoleon's self definition right right right, right. he was and, a, the corsicans were rebels they were not really french and who knows von braun might have just thought me and wolfie Ferguson right right were the ones who kept it real at edisburg right exactly is that possible i think my part of it might have been they were really close they were really close and they were really good friends and they had a really good time so how how late did he stay i don't remember but Sorry. he probably stayed for three hours you know with the Secret Service, with our cook in the kitchen. Secret Service was provided by the U.S.? Yes. The C he wherever, of course. I mean, Van so did Van Braun have Secret Service to protect him, or was he being watched? No, no, to protect him. He, to protect him. Oh, he God, Because yeah. he was an asset. You, you bet. Assassination? I mean, it would have been a disaster. No, no. They were protecting him. They, were all, they all had crew cuts. <laughs> they sat in the kitchen, and I introduced myself to them. So one thing in this is the connection between... Von Braun and the spacefaring market fundamentalists of 2021. Well, the dream of space goes back a while. You know, it goes back hundreds of years, actually. Yeah. But it goes back a while. And now these absurdly rich billionaires are dreaming of escaping from the planet. They want to get to Mars. Right. 
Um, I don't want to go to Mars. All, each one of them is a Michael Corleone hoping to get out of the brutal family that is planet Earth. Yeah, but they're dreaming the same dream that von Braun dreamed. I mean, they need the technology. They don't quite have it to do it. And right. he needed the technology, but he did it. He created it. But the fact is, it's it's an old dream. And now it's become a private sector dream. I mean, it never was. It used to be a government dream. But now it's a private sector dream. And, you know, they will get to Mars if they really, really want to. I don't know what's going to be the point of it, but they think maybe that the human race can escape from the horror of this planet. Can we say that the dream of space comes out of an optimistic moment in the beginning of the 20th century and in mid-century where people believe that they have found ideal political systems that can create a paradise on Earth, but the modern space dream is a tacit acknowledgement of the failure of all of those dreams? Yes, I think so. It's a write-off project, It's a write-off right? project. Also, of course, the modern space program uh, is connected to nuclear war. I mean, the Russians, the right. Russians and the Chinese and we are now working on hypersonic missiles. I don't know really what they mean. They mean they go much faster and they uh, uh, it, it can't be stopped. Do you think it's a cynical view? William Manchester says that basically the moonshot, Kennedy's moon program, was really just a way to sell a ton of missile testing to the American public? Yes. It was a marketing campaign. Well, it was also to, to sort of frighten the Russians in a very in-your-face kind of a way. But it was, yes, it was also a marketing a marketing ploy because, you know, the word missile is a very threatening word. I always say to people in London who've never been there before, this is the only major city in the world that's been under missile attack. Totally. I mean, I was in London this time last year, just a little bit before, and they were so not beleaguered and so not traumatized by COVID. And I only understood it when I was walking along the Thames and there's a memorial to, on this site, 60 people were killed by a V2 missile yeah. not that long ago. And I thought, oh, this is just a city that has been through yeah. quite a lot. No, it's been through more than probably most cities. Yeah. Yes, it has. You have to go to Asia. Right. You grew up with a fissure in your ceiling. Yes. And that this is the scar of history in our roof. That's right. A rocket, a big rocket, a rocket the length of this room. So, yes, I mean, the British have kind of taken, taken it on the chin, and they're much more stoical. You know, if New, I mean, New Yorkers are terrified of, you know, 9-11 or whatever. But the truth of the matter is that we've, we've never experienced a missile warfare. So von Braun symbolized that. I think we've done enough. I don't think we have. It's just going to be a short episode. Do you have any more thoughts on this, man? Uh, no, there's nothing to say. I mean, he was an engineer. There's nothing more to say. I didn't discuss his sex life with him. So.